Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Jack Bradley, in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump pleads not guilty in a Miami courtroom to historic federal charges related to his handling of classified government documents. Our on-the-ground reporters and analysts bring you the details. A new report by a government watchdog group says federal agencies spent half a trillion dollars on improper payments over the last two years. Stay tuned to find out where the money went. And U.S. spy agencies are spying on Americans by buying massive amounts of personal data that can be found on our phones, cars, and internet browsers. Could they have your data too? That and more when we come back. U.S. inflation slows to the lowest annual rate in two years, and egg prices see the largest decrease in over 70 years. After years of drought, California's rivers are roaring back following heavy snowpack. NTD tested the waters in the Sierra Nevada. To further unpack this, joining us live now is NTD's Iris Tao, who's in Miami at the federal courthouse and who watched the events unfold today. So Iris, what are the latest details here? Hey, good evening, Jack. So yes, we are still here at the federal courthouse in Miami where Trump appeared early this afternoon for his arraignment, which happened just a little bit before 3 p.m. Eastern time. And as we should know by this point that Trump was indicted and charged with 37 federal counts, including allegations that he willfully retained classified documents on national defense information, conspired to obstruct justice, as well as made false statements. But today, Trump pleaded not guilty to all 37 counts. And actually, Trump did not speak a word in the courtroom according to our reporter there, but his lawyers made a very resolute statement saying, quote, we most certainly enter a plea of not guilty. So earlier today, I spoke with Epic Times reporter Dennis Heisel about what she saw in the room as well as what's coming next. Let's take a listen. Well, this is actually just the first of many steps that's going to be happening now. Um, one of the conditions that the judge put on President Trump is that he cannot talk about the case to certain people uh, that, unless they are speaking through their attorneys. This is to prevent them from, you know, perhaps changing any information um, that could affect the case. So that was a special order that the judge did put on uh, former President Trump today. And what about, like, trial time and a conclusion time how long do you think it's going to take there was nothing stated in court today but it most people do think it's going to take quite a long time however the prosecution did say they would promise a speedy resolution to this i would also like to say that former president trump's uh, aide the uh, other gentleman who was charged uh, walt nata um the, he actually was not able to plead at all today because his lawyer isn't registered here in the state of Florida. So it's kind of a legal technicality, but he's going to probably be able to make it a not guilty plea on paper later on. So after the arraignment today, Trump actually posted on True Social on his way back to New Jersey. He said that, quote, thank you, Miami. Such a warm welcome on such a sad day. So, yes, Trump is still insisting that he has done nothing wrong and that this is a political witch hunt. And actually, so are his 
supporters saying that as well, basically applauding and clapping and cheering at him while his motorcade was leaving the courthouse earlier today. And now all eyes will be on the 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time speech that Trump will be giving from New, from New Jersey later tonight. And of course, we will hear more about what he thinks of this indictment as well as what actions that he might take going forward. Jack. Iris, thank you so much for that. Roman Baumakov from Epic Times TV is at the Miami courthouse today capturing public opinion. The um, sort of percentage here was 50-50, about 50% media, 50% protesters, as it usually is in a lot of these types of events. Let's speak to one of the protesters who's still around. We have Mr. Dion from New York. Hanging out, hanging out, representing for the boss, ultra-extreme MAGA. It's pretty much the only answer at this point. Yeah. What brought you here all the way from New York? Well, I spent half the year down here in Miami, go back and forth between Miami and New York. It's, uh, it's nice down here this time of year. It's getting a little bit hot, but uh, you know, if Trump hangs out down here, Mar-a-Lago, it's, uh, it's a good spot to be. Yeah. So why did you decide to come out here in this blazing heat and spend, what, five hours here holding flags? What, what, what were you uh, hoping to achieve? you got to support the boss. He's the best thing that's ever happened in the American political system. He's the best head, he's the best president we've ever had. He's the best thing that's ever happened to come down the escalator eight years ago. He's done nothing wrong. He's been on point. He's been right about everything. And the witch hunt continues. And it's been a slow media day for the last, I don't know, 27, 28 months. So Trump's good for the media. You guys like coming out. Everyone likes to support the boss. This is Trump country. Remember, this is not the sanctimonious country. This is MAGA country. This is the heart of MAGA country. You know what else is MAGA country? Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, because Trump won all those states in 2020. I didn't need to go watch that movie, uh, 2000 Mules, to find out if Trump won or not in 2020. He won twice already. He's going to win for a third time in 24. Thank you so much. And Trump keeps and uh, Trump keeps rising in the polls. Similar to the first indictment, the second one seems to help him more than it hurts him. At least that's according to recent numbers. Multiple polls are showing the former president is gaining in popularity. A new Reuters Ipsos poll completed on Monday shows Trump clearly leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Over 40% said they'd vote for Trump in the primaries, while just over 20% chose DeSantis. A poll by Real Clear Politics shows Trump leading by even more. According to those numbers, he enjoys the support of over 50% of Republican voters. Meanwhile, a new ABC News Ipsos poll shows Trump has gained six percentage points since April. And the Reuters Ipsos poll, as well as the CBS polls, show that the vast majority of Republicans think the charges against Trump are politically motivated. Now we're going to NTD congressional correspondent Melina Wisecup, who's reporting live from Capitol Hill. Melina, so what's the response on the ground over at the Hill? Right, so Democrats is expected to have a unified message about this, saying that nobody is above the law. Some Democrats pointing to the evidence as specific. And uh, Schumer, of course, commented on that today again, saying nobody is above the law. Whereas we do see a split over on the Republican side between House leadership and Senate Republican leadership, which we will show you just a little bit later. Many in House leadership are quick to defend former President Trump, pointing to what they call a two-tiered justice system and pointing to those classified documents uh, in President Biden's home, as well as the classified info found in emails of former Secretary Hillary Clinton. So we'll show you those reactions from Capitol Hill today. Watch. The Republican 
campaign for the nomination that's already been going on for six months, going to be going on for a year longer, and I'm just simply not going to comment on the candidates. We've got a bunch of them, and I'm just simply going to stay out of it. There is a rule of law. Uh, the president will be held to that to that standard. Uh, the former president will be held to that standard. There is a process for this. He will be treated like any other defendant and given his opportunity uh, to make his case uh, in court. Um, but the allegations are incredibly troubling. And the fact that House Republicans continue to try to come to his rescue uh, just blows our mind, uh, quite honestly. This, is, this was from years ago with Burisma. You know, and when they say paid Biden, the first question that's going to be asked, which Biden? Multiple Bidens, Jamie Comer's committee has shown, were getting millions of dollars from shell corporations. Uh, again, where is that uh, public raid? Did you see a raid on Joe Biden's garage? Did you see a raid uh, on Hillary's server? She wasn't president of the United States, and she had classified documents on a server that she destroyed, almost kind of jokes about it now, uh, because she knows that she's going to be treated differently. All right, so as you just heard, you heard Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sort of sidestep the question about the arraignment, but then you saw Leader Scalise on the House side quick to defend former President Trump. Many in the GOP have said, uh, questioned the FBI and the DOJ, saying why haven't they paid as much attention to the alleged Biden bribery scheme as they, as they have to former President Trump's handling of classified documents. Now, just to point out, over on the Senate side, there are some Senate Republicans who have split with leadership, particularly freshman Senator J.D. Vance, who was endorsed by former President Trump, took to the Senate floor today vowing to slow down Biden's Department of Justice nominations because of this arraignment. He says that he doesn't want to support any nominees that he alleges is interested in uh, targeting a political opponent of President Biden. Now, as for, um, now as for, okay, that seems to be all the reaction that we have. I'm losing my train of thought now, so we'll toss it back to you in the studio. Earlier this afternoon, we saw major developments in Trump's arraignment, and we have insights from several experts. It is not a crime for a former president to have his presidential records in the office of the former president that is specifically allowed by the Presidential Records Act. The Biden Justice Department is ignoring the Presidential Records Act and charging Trump under the Espionage Act, which is not applicable to a former president's handling of his presidential records. The, uh, the Espionage Act would be applicable to a former president's handling of other classified records, but just not his presidential records. They're ignoring that, and they're trying to charge him with espionage, even though there is zero evidence that Trump intended to harm the United States. But the issue, issue isn't whether you had the documents secure or not. The issue is that you either took the documents purposely or otherwise, right? But the 37, 31 of the 37 indictment or, or counts in the indictment go to what he did to cover it up and to not give them back. That's why Donald Trump is indicted. There's no weaponization of DOJ. Think about this. If DOJ did not indict Donald Trump for all he did with his body person and for all he did with moving the documents, with all he did with his lawyer to avoid turning these documents over, and we did not, quote, weaponize DOJ, what would that say about the rule of law and DOJ? It would say that Donald Trump was above the law. 
And so this is not something that our founders um, expected. You know, their concerns were about bribery and corruption. That's why the impeachment clause includes the word bribery in it. Our founders were more worried about a president accepting money from a foreign source and uh, that putting undue influence on him. You know what the founders did with their papers? They took them home with them. And then their family members put them in books and let universities publish them. So it, tracing back to the very beginning, most presidents have taken their papers with them. And it's only been in modern history since we've had the, the um, you know, presidential libraries and presidential museums have been develop, developed this classification system and that kind of thing, and it's been more formalized. And I recently read uh, an autobiography of George W. Bush, and I looked back and he presented in his autobiography three different war plans that the, that the military gave him after 9-11. And those had to have been classified originally, right? And so the archives knows that presidents need documents like that to be able to write their memoirs. And so this, this certainly is um, out of the norm for the way we've done things in the past. I think this only makes Trump stronger. I think this really creates an unbelievable power because it's whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You, know, you can't say that about DeSantis. You can't say that about Chris Christie. You can't say that about any of the candidates that are running against President Trump. And it's so obvious that the establishment wants to get rid of this man because he continues to put the American people first, whereas the establishment continues to put the American people last. There's, there's no more obvious case than this. It's a years-long political persecution. They spied on his campaign, as you know, from Russiagate and the Russia hoax. They sabotaged his administration. They framed a three-star general. And they sought to undermine a sitting U.S. president. And now they're weaponizing a Department of Justice to imprison their political opposition and get him off the campaign trail. And that is unfortunate because America is really on trial right now. In my opinion, the constitutional republic that this country has is on trial right now. It's not just about Donald Trump. It's about our constitution and our republic. We turn now to our legal correspondent, Arlene Richards. Arlene, uh, now that former President Trump has been indicted for the second time and with more charges expected to come, uh, can he legally continue to run for president? Yes, he can, Jack. The Constitution doesn't prevent him from running for president uh, while this legal matter is going on, and it doesn't even stop him if he's convicted, although it's going to be uh, interesting to find out whether or not he can operate as president from a prison cell, and that may be something that the Supreme Court will have to decide if he wins the presidency. And the former president has pleaded not guilty to all 37 charges. What happens next in the legal process? Well, this is going to be a long process of uh, talking to the judge, trying to get things taken out that the uh, prosecutor has now put in the indictment, all the different evidence that is in the indictment. The, the, defense, the defense now can try and get that out and not, not get to the jury. So this is going to take a long time for them to go back and forth with the judge different rulings, and it may even go through uh, appeals processes. It could go beyond the actual uh, election time. So it, it's going to take a while. Yeah, it sure could. So former President Trump and some Republicans have said that this indictment is a weaponization of the DOJ and FBI. Um, can you explain why they have this opinion? So according to the Republicans and some legal experts, this case started out as a dispute between the National Archives and President Trump. So it was about documents and whether or not, you know, he should be releasing some of the documents. 
Um, and so they feel that this indictment doesn't have anything in it about the Presidential Records Act. There's no uh, allegations coming into this indictment under the Presidential Records Act. It's only about espionage and conspiracy. But on the other hand, once the FBI got involved and they asked him for the documents, the other argument is that he should have turned over the documents. And when he didn't turn over the documents, then it became a criminal probe. So they're saying that he should have just cooperated other, and otherwise this would never have happened. Jack. All right, Arlene Richards, thank you very much for that. So coming up, a new report by a government watchdog group says that federal agencies wasted a record-breaking $520 billion on improper payments over the last two years. And U.S. spy agencies are spying on Americans by buying massive amounts of personal data that can be found on your phone, car, or internet browsers. Could they have your data too? That and more when we come back. Over the last two years, federal agencies wasted over half a trillion dollars on improper payments. That's according to a new report by a government watchdog nonprofit which analyzed federal data. Open the Books just reported that federal government agencies improperly spent an estimated $528 billion during that two-year period. The group says that in fiscal year 2022, federal agencies made $247 billion in improper payments and that in 2021, that number was even higher, at $281 billion. Both years are higher than any previous year, even when adjusting for inflation. The group reports that in the past year alone, most of the improper payments occurred in the areas of Medicaid at $81 billion, Medicare at $47 billion, and the Paycheck Protection Program at $29 billion. Open the Books said improper payments can be dispersed because of the federal agencies either had wrong information or not enough information, or they just didn't follow the law, the law. The report also says that the last year, federal agencies spent $4.4 billion on confirmed fraud. Here to break this down is the founder of Open the Books, Adam Angievsky. Adam Angievsky, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me on, and thanks for having me back. So uh, let's break down this uh, report. So why are we seeing this unprecedented spending on improper payments? So this is a bipartisan problem that goes back at least to the year 2004. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com just quantified when you adjust the disclosed and admitted federal agencies, they admit to $3 trillion of mistaken and improper payments since 2004. And so a mistake, uh, an improper payment, the definition of that is actually the payment to the wrong person in the wrong amount or under the wrong set of federal rules. So, um, you know, why are we seeing these, uh, the, all, all of this improper payments uh, coming about just in the last two years alone? So federal agencies have an abject lack of in-house financial accounting controls. And so you see the rates of errors sometimes on large federal programs between 15% and 26%. And that's actually like at Health and Human Services on the Medicaid and Medicare programs. One of the worst offenders is actually the Internal Revenue Service. They run a program called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And they have an error rate of 31%. 
where they've overpaid people that don't deserve a tax credit eight, over $18 billion just last year. And can we go into some of the other areas of uh, improper payments? So what else, um, what were some of the more outrageous ones? So I think the most outrageous thing is the top line figure over the first two years of the Biden administration. They've admitted the Biden administration to improperly paying over a half trillion dollars in just their first two years in office. So think about that trend over four years, they'll improperly pay $1 trillion to folks that are undeserving of your taxpayer money. And so what are gonna be the impacts of this uh, spending on improper payments? So Congress needs to crack down. It is the constitutional duty and oversight of Congress to hold the federal executive agencies accountable for the dollars that they appropriate. So the first thing is to institute basic internal accounting controls, minimize the error rates in the large federal social safety net programs, bring them down to reasonable levels. Here's the second thing. The American people want clawback. If the federal agencies can identify that just last year the Biden administration admitted to a quarter trillion dollars in improperly paid bills, the American people want clawback, invest in clawback. Right now, incredibly, the federal agencies are only clawing back nine cents on every dollar of admitted improper and mistaken payments. And um, after this election, do you think that uh, that will impact anything in this regard? So I think, you know, somebody running for, con for president, if somebody running for president of the United States needs to make it a core part of their campaign to reduce improper payments. I mean, it's last year it was a quarter trillion dollars. Your neighborhood grocery store has better internal financial accounting controls than the United States federal government. So somebody running for president should make it a signature part of their campaign. And then when they win, they should hold these federal agencies accountable to reduce the waste, the fraud, the corruption, and taxpayer abuse. Well, Adam Andrzejewski, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. U.S. spy agencies are spying on Americans by buying massive amounts of personal data found on our phones, cars, and internet browsers. Could they have your data too? NTD's Fake Quarter has more. U.S. government spy agencies are buying vast amounts of Americans' personal data, data from sources like phones, cars, and internet browsers. According to a report commissioned by the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, this data includes financial data, social media data, and commercial satellite imagery. The government refers to this data as commercially available information, or CAI. In the past, if you wanted this kind of personal data, you'd have to use extremely intrusive methods, such as wiretapping, cyber espionage, or physical surveillance. But much of this information is now commercially and therefore publicly available. Our data is open uh, to anybody who can provide it, um, and in many cases for a fee. John Clay is the VP of Threat Intelligence at Trend Micro. He says pretty much anyone could get their hands on this data, even China. Clay says there are two big dangers people should watch out for when this data gets into the wrong hands. They can do identity theft uh, attacks against you. They can do scams, obviously. So if your email gets uh, gets taken or your phone number gets taken, they can do uh, scams uh, via email or via text, even phone calls to you to try to scam you. In response to the report, Senator Ron Wyden says new laws must be passed to address this problem. He says that guardrails must be placed 
placed around government purchases, that private companies that collect and sell this data must be reined in, and that personal information must be kept out of the hands of adversaries. The technology is evolving so quickly, and the mass of data increases uh, exponentially, that it's hard for the regulators to keep up to speed. And at the same time, you want to make sure that the regulators don't abuse their authority. Mark Ruskin is a former FBI special agent. He says that government needs to strike a delicate balance so that these laws are enforced in a way that's consistent with our civil liberties. Bay Quarter, NTD News. How Roe v. Wade affects free speech on college campuses. A new report says pro-life students are being silenced at record rates since the Supreme Court decision. NTD's Arian Pazdar brings us the latest numbers. Students for Life of America on Tuesday released a new report regarding pro-life activism on college campuses. The report shows numbers for the 2022-2023 school year, the first year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Students for Life says about the new numbers that this is a record-breaking year for free speech violations. We have never seen them at this scale before. The report found more than 100 free speech violations during the last school year. Most of the censorship was allegedly enforced by school administration. But the most reported issue was destruction or theft of property, such as this incident at New York's Hunter College, where a professor harassed pro-life students. Because you can't even have a baby. So you don't even know what that is. You don't even know what this is. Get the out of here, the college at the time said in a statement to Fox News that the school was taking this matter very seriously and that the provost has opened an investigation into the professor's actions. The clip you see right now shows another violent incident that took place this school year. Antifa stormed a room at Virginia Commonwealth University where Students for Life was giving a presentation. The organization's president reportedly required medical attention after the violent attacks. The new report also showed that Planned Parenthood is focused mostly on college-aged women, finding that nearly 90% of all Planned Parenthood facilities are located within five miles of a college campus. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The rate of inflation has slowed for the 11th consecutive month. It cooled to its lowest annual rate in about two years last month. This is according to a report from the Labor Department today. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, fell by 0.9 percentage points. It's sitting at 4% year-over-year in the month ending in May. Overall, inflation is decelerating thanks to energy and food costs. Food commodity prices have dropped back to levels seen prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The price of eggs fell nearly 14% compared to last month. This is the largest decrease in over 70 years. However, inflation is proving to be sticky on the core side. In the 12 months through May... The core CPI climbed to 5.3%. For more, NTD Business's Don Moss speaks with an economic annual analyst. And here to talk to me is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst, Bankrate.com. So let's talk about the headline CPI and then the, the core CPI. Headline number, we got 4.0%, uh, down 9 tenths uh, year over year. Uh, seems like we're making uh, some progress here with the inflation fight. 
Well, we've seen, I would say, progress in the war on inflation, but uh, the battle isn't won, of course, when we see just the headline inflation up 4% over the past year and higher than that on the uh, benchmark, which excludes food and energy, which typically we'd be excluding those because they're more volatile. But the reality is that all these prices have been volatile as we've been dealing with what had been the highest inflation in four decades, of course. You know, we, we are still well down from the peak. Remember on the headline uh, from last uh, June, we were at 9.1% on an annual increase on headline consumer price index. So that was quite stunning when we were knocking on the door of a double digit increase. As we look around the world, Europe has had it worse than we have had. That's what got the Federal Reserve in the game of raising interest rates in March of last year, when many of us uh, had been lulled into a sense of complacency that record low interest rates would be a thing that might last forever, but uh, inflation and the performance of the economy had some other ideas. So, Mark, on the core side, uh, we got a little bit more sticky inflation, 5.3% year over year. What do you think is contributing to this stickiness? Well, let's note, first of all, with the annual rise in the CPI of, I think, 5.3%, that's down from the peak of 66 but that's still way too high for the Federal Reserve to be comfortable when we think about its 2% target. And the Fed may have uh, an opinion about the idea of whether that 2% target is attainable at some point down the road. We'll get an update on that as they release uh, their uh, collective summary of economic projections. But services inflation has been more persistent, and there are some other real-time metrics, for example, of rent you know, taken nationwide that indicate that there has been more substantial cooling, but it doesn't necessarily show up in this data. And of course, the Federal Reserve knows that as well. Well, all right. Thank you so much this morning, Mark. Uh, always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Don. Thank you for having me. The Senate will investigate Saudi Arabia's influence in American Gulf. Lawmakers say the Saudi regime is using sports to distract from its troubling human rights situation. Here are the details. The Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal is the chairman of the Select Subcommittee on Investigations. On Monday, he sent a letter to Live Golf CEO Greg Norman, starting an investigation. Live is a professional golf tour. It was launched in 2021 by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, or PIF. Now, just last week, the PGA Tour announced that it would partner with Live by establishing a new commercial entity. This will unify golf with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Saudi Arabia will provide the capital investment to support the new entity. Blumenthal's letter reads that PGA Tour's agreement with PIF regarding Live Golf raises concerns about the Saudi government's role in influencing the effort and the risks posed by a foreign government entity assuming control over a cherished American institution. PIF previously expressed its intention to utilize sports investment to expand Saudi Arabia's strategic objectives. This has some worried about an attempt to improve the country's global image despite its troubling human rights record. According to Blumenthal, critics have cast such Saudi investments in sports as a means of sport washing, an attempt to soften the country's image around the world, given Saudi Arabia's deeply disturbing human rights record at home and abroad. The committee is now requesting specific documents and information related to the agreement. Coming up, a new revelation. Washington confirms that a Chinese spy base has been in operation in America's backyard for years. What's the State Department doing about it? 
And a string of early morning attacks leaves three dead and three injured in the English city of Nottingham. We'll return with that and more after the break. A new revelation. A Chinese spy base has been up and running in Cuba for years. Washington officially confirming the news on Monday. Meanwhile, the Biden administration and former Trump officials are blaming each other. NTD's Juliet Song has the details. The strategy begins with diplomacy. America's uh, top diplomat Antony Blinken said, the U.S. has been aware of China's effort to set up global intelligence gathering operations for some time. Uh, in fact, Based on the information we have, the PRC conducted an upgrade of its intelligence collection facilities in Cuba in 2019. PRC is short for the People's Republic of China, the country's official name. Blinken's response came days after the news that China allegedly struck a deal with Cuba to host a secret spy base. The location? Around 100 miles from Florida. The Wall Street Journal broke the story, citing unnamed sources. It made waves because a Chinese spy base in Cuba could allow Beijing to tap electronic communications in southeastern U.S., home to dozens of military bases. The U.S. Central Command headquarters is located in Tampa, Florida, while America's largest military base is in North Carolina. Former intelligence officials say that could give the Chinese regime a clearer picture of what targets to strike in the United States, should a conflict break out. Blinken's response stands in contrast with that of the White House. Spokesperson John Kirby previously called the report inaccurate, though he didn't clarify exactly what information is incorrect. Both Cuba and China deny the spy base's existence with Beijing accusing the U.S. of, quote, spreading rumors and slander. Secretary of State Antony Blinken noted the administration had been engaging with governments that are weighing whether to host Chinese bases. Our experts assess that our diplomatic efforts have slowed down uh, this effort by the, uh, the PRC. The White House said it has raised concerns with Cuba about the Chinese spying efforts. John Kirby said he wouldn't expect this incident to affect Blinken's visit to China later this week, adding Washington wants to keep the lines of communication open with Beijing. Juliet Song, NTD News. In England, a man was arrested on suspicion of murder after a series of attacks left three dead and three injured. Police, including counterterrorism investigators, are working to establish the motive of the attacker. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more. Three people have died and another three are being treated at a hospital following a series of attacks in the English city of Nottingham on Tuesday. Police described it as a horrific and tragic incident. A 31-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of murder. He is understood to have a history of mental health issues. Counter-terrorism investigators are involved to establish what has happened. Witnesses described hearing screams and seeing two people being stabbed in the early morning. They were both found dead at around 4 a.m. local time on Tuesday. A third victim was discovered about two miles away. Three other people were injured when someone tried to run them over with a white van. An eyewitness described the van attack to the BBC. The woman went on the curb. Uh, the man went up in the air. It was such a bang. 
I wish, to, I, wish I never saw it because it's really shaken me up. She said the van driver went straight for these people. They are now being treated at a hospital. Another woman said Nottingham is a wonderful city, but this incident is unsettling. You always feel really safe on the streets and, yeah, we just, it's just foreign to us in, in all sorts of ways, really. Inside a police cordon, officers guarded the white van. Several major roads were closed and the Nottingham tram network was suspended. Members of the emergency services were visible across the city. The opposition leader commented. I'm sure I speak for everybody in this room in saying that we'd like to just send our thoughts to all those affected um, and to the emergency services who are responding to this. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said, My thoughts are with those injured and the family and loved ones of those who have lost their lives. Police said much of the city would remain sealed off while the investigation is continuing. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. Coming up, with 50 states and hundreds of thousands of cities to live in, one city stands out. Sitting along the Northern California Bay, this city has been crowned the best in the U.S. for raising a family. And after years of drought, California's rivers are roaring back following heavy snowpack. NTD tested the waters in the Sierra Nevada. That and more when we come back here on NTD News. We all depend on the mail being delivered on time, and we demand a lot from our mail carriers. But the post office also needs us to do our part to help keep their employees safe. NTD's Christina Corona has more from Los Angeles. There's an old saying, postal service won't be stopped due to snow, rain, heat, nor the gloom of night. But there's a more daunting hazard for mail carriers than just horrible weather. Deborah Davis, a Postal Service employee and safety ambassador for the city of Los Angeles, explains how important it is to keep our family dogs a safe distance away from their postal workers. Well, more importantly, we want to alert our customers and let them know that they can help us. We can collaborate to ensure that our customers and our carriers are working together to make sure that our carriers get home safely. Dog bites happen all over the country, but apparently they happen more frequently here in Los Angeles. We are number two in the nation with dog bites having 48 incidents this past year. We're trying to communicate to everyone how important it is for our employees to come home the way that they went to work without a dog bite. Postal carrier Teresa Trotter shares with us a terrifying experience she suffered through on what would have otherwise been an average workday. I have a dog came out the gate. Actually, it opened up the gate with his nose. It wasn't locked. So the owner didn't all the way close the uh, gate. So when the dog came out, it came out by surprise and it attacked me. I put my satchel in front of me. It overpowered me. And when I got my spray to spray it, it still did not let my leg go. So I had to have another customer run over there and scare the dog away to get off of me. A lot of adults, the first thing they want to say is, oh, my dog don't bite. Yes, they do. They have teeth. They might not bite you because you're the owner, but they most definitely will bite me. And a final thought on how we can protect the safety and welfare of our mail carriers. 
I would really appreciate if all the customers are alert, they alert their families how dangerous it is when our carriers are bitten by dogs. We all love our pets and they're a part of our family. But as dog owners, let's all share in the responsibility of keeping mail carriers and the entire community safe from unnecessary dog attacks. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. The average American can expect to move an estimated 11.7 times in a lifetime. WalletHub's new report on the best places to raise a family gives movers a sense of their options. NTD's Sean Morgan has the story. According to a recent report by WalletHub, the Bay Area city of Fremont, California has been crowned the number one city in the United States for raising a family. The study evaluated 182 U.S. cities, including the 150 most populated ones, as well as at least two of the most populated cities in each state. Fremont has just been named the best city to raise a family in for the second year in a row. We are here in Fremont's Lake Elizabeth to ask Fremont residents what it's like to live in Fremont. You know, our kids keep coming back here because uh, they feel the family environment here. They feel like, you know, this city has given so much to them that it keeps bringing them back here. The study's five dimensions encompassed family fun, health and safety, education and childcare, affordability, and socioeconomics, allowing for a comprehensive assessment of each city's family-friendly attributes. We really like it. We really like the neighborhood. Everything's close by, and um, especially like yeah, for our babies, we, we come to Lake Elizabeth a lot. Um, this is like our go-to, and I mean, we, re we really like it here. Notably, Fremont achieved remarkable rankings in two key dimensions. It clinched the top spot in socioeconomics, indicating a robust economic climate and opportunities for families to flourish. Furthermore, the city secured first place in the education and child care category. Uh, I think uh, we live very close to the Weibel Elementary School. It's rated very high. And the Mission High School is also rated very high, one of the highest in California. Uh, many students go to Berkeley and other top universities. So. I think we have no regrets. I think they've done a good job. In terms of health and safety, Fremont performed admirably and secured the second position among all the cities analyzed. Overall, I, I mean, compared to other cities over here, this is a pretty safe neighborhood. I mean, like she said, we have been living here for almost four years now. And I mean, we haven't had any such incident or anything. It's pretty safe out here. While Fremont, Overland Park, and Irvine ranked as the top three places to raise a family, Detroit, Memphis, and Cleveland came in as the bottom three in overall ranking. Fremont is also ranked as the happiest city in the U.S. for the third year in a row. In Fremont, California, Sean Morgan, NTD News. California rivers are roaring back following a wet winter. With water supplies and deliveries up, NTD's David Lamb decided to test the waters at the state's popular South Fork American River. According to the Bureau of Land Management, the South Fork American River is one of the most popular and most populated whitewater river runs for rafting and kayaking in California. It runs about 21 miles located in El Dorado County. I'm here in Lotus, California, and as you can see, a lot of people are lining up to go whitewater rafting, especially after this year's snowpack. This past April was the fourth time in California history that the state recorded above 200% of its April snow measurements. This is due to the record level snow that accumulated this year. 
after years of drought, it's all the better for rafting guides like Davis Montenegro from Costa Rica, who travel to California to help people navigate whitewater rapids each year when the demand increases. We got a lot of water this year, but so a good thing up here, we have a lot of guys from different countries, so not just from the area and they are really good guides. Montenegro says the rafting season spans from April to September at this location. July is gonna be the busiest is for us here. And I think for the whole companies in this river. <laughs> Rapids are classified on a scale from one to six based on difficulty and danger. Rapids form when running water moves swiftly over a shallow area with obstacles or walls. So the classification, for example, in this river, so we go from class one to class four. That's what we had here in this river. So everything goes by water level depends too, or the classification of a rapid. So for example, class one is like minor rocks and just moving water. And then class four is means like more gradient, could be like a water and stuff like that. And big, boulders, you know, creating more big waves. So that's how we classificate the, the rapids. While class one to three rapids can be family friendly, conditions can still get rough with people falling off their rafts. One raft ended up capsizing during this excursion. Luckily, everyone made it back on the raft, minus one sliver. So one thing that you have to pay attention if you come to, to visit the river is make sure your company had a a good guys you know and then good water level like not too high but in a perfect water level to do this activity the south fork american also has a special significance because the river flushed gold downstream during the great california gold rush of 1849. again with the snow melt a lot of people may not be expecting fast speeds or like deep waters but the important thing is to follow the safety regulations listen to the instructor and most of all, have fun. In Lotus, California, David Lamb, NCD News. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jack Bradley. Good night.